0: Welcome to the Roth Brothers Show, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time.
1: It's
0: business. It's business time. And now, here are your hosts, Evan and Dan Roth.
2: It's business. It's business time. to the Roth Brothers Show. I'm Daniel Roth. I'm Evan Roth. And this is episode one, so if you haven't tuned in before... (laughs) To the prequel. There was the, the
3: Roth Brothers show, the prequel, which was on limited release, mostly just an art house. Uh, A-track. Uh, A-track.
2: We are here to talk you through the world of business.
3: It's something that's as basic as stories that Danny and I are interested in. And we feel like if we're interested in them, then if we can bring out in our guests topics that would interest a broad group, then we've been successful in being able to distribute good ideas, concepts, stories of people that you wouldn't be able to hear in other places.
2: One interesting fact that you might not pick up is that we're brothers.
3: Yeah, we were raised together. The the brother part was the only way to pick that up is if you can infer the show being the Roth brothers, both of us having the same last name
2: and but these are on the radio. They can't see that we look alike. That's true. We grew up in Kentucky, uh, surrounded by business, I would say, well, surrounded by horses and business. <laughs> And bourbon. And we uh, both live in New York City while. My brother is very comfortable with words.
3: I'm much more comfortable with numbers. So where we bring is different perspectives. Danny is on the media. Mine is from money management. Um, I started a business uh, 14 years ago, focused in that area, and spent most of my time during the business building phase is talking to people just like the ones who we're going to be
2: interviewing based on kind of how they became successful in their own right. Story of the week, I got to say, this one has stuck with me. I've read it and I just keep thinking more and more about this. It starts off small, it just gets bigger. This is Amazon teaming up with the U.S. Postal Service to start Sunday delivery. A team of Titans. When you think of business
3: Titans, you think Amazon number one, U.S. Postal Service 1A. Oh my God. What's amazing is that how similar they are in efficiency,
2: productivity, just, you know, raw kind of successful Harvard business case study kind of businesses. That's right. I think that if you look back at the kind of – when Bill Gates was starting out, yeah. it was initially build a software company that will be like, like the US, US Service. Right? Correct. Correct. So it didn't achieve that. One king dream. Now, this is a – this pairing, I think, is is incredibly interesting because Amazon is already – so deep into consumers' lives. They have made it so easy to buy anything you want and get it shipped to you that they steal business constantly from local businesses, from massive chains. You know, we used to be worried about the big boxes. Now the big boxes seem like the total underdogs compared to Amazon. They start Sunday delivery. I think this is only one step towards anytime, anywhere delivery, which very briefly during the initial dot-com era we, we, we saw. I actually think it's remarkable With the speed of technology and
3: technology change, that it's actually taken us this long, 14 years, to go from what we had of instantaneous gratification of anything we want to deliver to our home until now. We're getting closer, but we're getting closer because now they're delivering on Sundays. Right. We still, yes, in metropolitan areas, New York, L.A., Seattle, there's options for us to be able to have food delivered when we want to have it delivered. But it is still few and far between, and it feels like it's very much in beta.
2: Well, it is. I mean, considering this is a, the, the on-demand era, Evan and I both have uh, young children who can't imagine a time where they weren't able to get whatever show they want whenever they want it, wherever they are. That's true for all digital goods. It's not true for physical goods. Yet, it, it, I think that this Sunday delivery is about to start. That I think yeah, our kids will get used to having it. It starts Sunday delivery. Then it starts bike delivery. But and, how has and, Amazon not already done this? I mean, first of all, they invested $60 million in
3: Cosmo.com in 2000. Cosmo for any New Yorker is it's a nostalgic name that was delivery within an hour of any product you want. Its rival was a firm called Urbanfetch.com, which was run by a friend of mine, Ross Stevens, who had noble visions and flamed out. But Urbanfetch and Cosmo were at that point Amazon realized in 2000. Think about it, very early on in Jeff Bezos's sort of you know experimentation with you know delivery services and when he was just thinking about books. $60 million at the time in 2000 could have created – because Cosmo in 2000 was profitable in three of their 11 areas already. So they should have been able to take whatever retrenchment they needed to do in 2000 and been able to create something out of that, out of that investment in Cosmo, that would allow them to not wait 14 years to have to partner with USPS
2: to be able to deliver on Sundays. I'm just saying. It's a different company now than it was in 2000. You have delivered – you look at what they did buying soap.com. This is a company that now has warehouses all over the country. The warehouses are run like incredible Japanese-style factories. There They are. The productivity in them is incredibly high. They can move big items around much faster now. Mm-hmm. The missing piece was how do you get it to people's homes. I think Cosmo was probably an interesting look into how they could do it. But now they're at the point where they actually have the goods closer to people and they can move uh, them. That makes sense, actually, because they also Amazon also ended up hiring
3: Charles Park, the founder of Cosmo.com. And he worked there until a few years ago. And so if it was just a matter of having the right intelligence on how to actually deliver that final mile, they should have had it. Either through their knowledge of working with Cosmo side-by-side as partners, having the CEO there. Yeah. So it really was just a matter of having capital to be able to build the infrastructure to allow for straight-on
2: delivery. Uh, let me ask you this. Local businesses, do you think they survive? If you are running any kind of a business that sells the same goods Amazon sells yeah. – which is everything. Are you nervous about the Sunday delivery? Well, I don't
3: know. How does Amazon do it,
2: right? Is it going to be like seamless, right? Seamless Web doesn't
3: actually deliver the food. They just are the middleman between the restaurant and the consumer. If Amazon does that, then why not my you know, Morgan's Market at the end of my
2: block? All they have to do is enter into a partnership with Amazon to be able to deliver my pack of Trident right. within a half hour. Which Amazon does right now with books and other goods you can actually sell as a vendor. You can sell your your stuff through Amazon. The problem is who who owns these bodegas, right? It's
3: immigrants who are not necessarily thinking proactively about reaching out to Jeff Bezos at Amazon to know that they are – somebody who would want to be the merchant for Amazon to be able to deliver that last mile. And I think Amazon realized that, which is why they have to go to the U.S. Postal Service for
2: support. That's so New York of you. You know, the bodegas are, this is a, mm-hmm. you, you are, this is in, in this world, this is, this is your world. It's the block, it's the bodega, it's the Mike's uh, fancy grocery.
3: Yeah, like you didn't have a bodega growing up at the end of Red Fox Road in Louisville, Kentucky. No bodega? Oh. The
2: bodega would actually <laughs> deliver hay uh, to our house for our, our team of horses. <laughs> But I think that if you are a, a a merchant in any of these areas where Amazon's getting into, you do need to figure out exactly what you're saying, which is how to partner with them. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how you hold on to your customers after that. They Amazon then owns the customer relationship, and that I think is 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 going to be a huge challenge. But it will step up. It will force everyone to step up their game too. You'll you'll have to be able to deliver instantly because Amazon does too. Don't you think there's something great about like Jeff Bezos, like having
3: like U.S. Postal Service working for him?
2: Yeah, no, it's incredible. For so long, this was the monopoly in the country that everyone had to answer to, you know, and you were stuck on their time. You read his biography on him? Just w- w- what makes him tick? Oh, the Brad Assuming Stonewall. that yes. he's not going
3: to be on episode two. Right. Jeff Bezos isn't—get into the mind of Jeff Bezos. Is he yes. somebody who looks at this as a conquering, defining moment? I own the Washington Post. Look at my trophy case, Right. This is not a guy who has a trophy case from a lot of athletic achievements, right? He doesn't have a trophy case from, you know, being the star wrestler, 103 pounds. He actually is looking at the Washington Post as that kind of trophy is he looking at the U.S. Postal Service in the same way?
2: I, I disagree with you about the looking at these as trophies. Well, then you'd be wrong. I think that just because when you look back at your own history, the fact that you didn't get the trophy for being the 103-pound yeah. wrestler. Yeah. It is, and I I'm still, I think you're personalizing it. This is a— I, I did get the trophy for the quickest pin, but then it was taken away from me. Uh. By you, well, this is when, and just to point out, we were the ones being pinned, being pinned. Not oh, oh, I didn't, there. I didn't clarify <laughs> that it was. <laughs> so the, I think that for Bezos, it is very much a what's next, what's next, what's next. Mm-hmm. I think that there is no, it is not a trophy mentality. It's what right, interesting. This is fun to do. This is interesting. I've won here. I'm going to win here. I'm going to win here. I'm going to keep you know what it is about intellectual challenge it's about conquering it's about where else he can spread his what he's learned and keep applying the algorithms keep applying the same lessons and just keep taking over more and more of what he sees as his world which is you know basically anything that involves a customer and it's a a, big world. yeah no it's a, it's a huge you think about it that way it's if you are a customer of something you could be a customer of Amazon
0: You're listening to The Roth Brothers Show. You can follow us on Twitter, at Roth Brothers, or you can email us at therothbrothers@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Now, here's more with your hosts, Dan and Evan Roth.
2: Welcome back to the Roth Brothers Show. We have with us here today Mike Lazro, Very excited to have Mike here for the grilling session.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Absolutely. So Mike is a serial entrepreneur, has started and sold three companies, the most recent one, Buddy Media, to Salesforce.com about 14 months ago. Yes, that's and right. And for $800 million. Mike is currently the CMO of the Salesforce Marketing Cloud, and uh, I'm lucky enough to have uh, uh, known Mike since uh, since uh, some of his earliest days as an entrepreneur. We met over 20 years ago at Northwestern, and uh, it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming.
1: It is awesome to be here. Great.
2: Thanks. Um, we want to talk to you a little bit about the idea of how you became an entrepreneur. When yeah. w- Do you have any early memories? Are you the kind of kid that was selling, not not just selling lemonade, but ha- arranging so other kids would sell lemonade and you got a cut of it. What was your What were kind of your early days with this?
1: So I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. My grandfather was a builder of low-income housing in the Baltimore area. And so he was all about building a business and doing good in the community. And my stepfather had a business, which was a financial consulting business. And my dad had a home inspection and development business. And so no one in my family really had a a regular job, a nine to five, go to work, punch in, punch out. I didn't know that that was going to affect me as much, but I looked back and I really wasn't surrounded with anyone who had that type of job. Now having said that, I was always doing crazy things. So when I was 13, I wrote to the board of the Sally May Corporation and I said, why don't you have any students on the board of the Student Loan Marketing Association? They never got back to me, (laughs) but I did that. (laughs) And, you know, I worked in high school. Most kids went and they went on teen tours and, you know, they just did stuff um, in the D.C. area. They'd go and work on the Hill. And I basically got a job for the American Political Network, which was producing this daily briefing. And there was a guy there named Doug Bailey who had just created these things. And these things were making money. So he'd summarize the news and sell it for like $5,000 a pop. And I thought it was brilliant. At the same time, we happened to graduate at the time when the Internet was commercializing. So 1996. I think I'm a little younger than you. And I just want to point that out. And uh, so I was either go be a reporter, which, unlike you, I wasn't very good at. The whole thing about, like, getting facts correct, I had a problem with. Danny's never actually
3: been good at it either. He just faked it better.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's why he's at LinkedIn (laughs) now.
2: Wait, but did your parents push you to get these jobs, or was it something that you were motivated on your own to to do?
1: If anything, they pushed me to get a real job. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't forget, this is 1996. The Internet basically didn't exist as a commercial platform. I mean
2: even before that. When you were in high school or when you were in college and starting a a business in college, were your parents cheering you on? Were they saying, what are you
1: doing, Concentrate on your studies? Uh, They were were supportive but clearly didn't know what I was doing doing, you know, you go to Northwestern University and you do everything you're supposed to do to get a job, right? You right. graduate, you're supposed right. to get a job. And all of a sudden when I said, I'm just going to create this thing, which I'd started in college called University Wire, it was kind of like, well, why did we spend all this money for college when you're just starting things? Not that they verbalize that, but I think if you would ask my mom, who was very supportive, she would have said, yeah, I thought he should have been a reporter in Washington. And, you know, I just felt that the Internet was going to be big. Who knew it would be this big? But I felt like it was just an amazing medium. And you could already see newspapers losing, you know, circulation. I wasn't really reading a newspaper. Google was, you know, just getting started. At the same time, Yahoo was organizing the web. And so it just seemed like the right thing to do, which was kind of my first lesson of if you follow your gut, things usually turn out okay. Mm Mm-hmm. When was the last time you said to yourself, wow, I shouldn't have followed my gut? My gut sucks. Right, it got yeah. me in, like, all this trouble. Right. I'm right? It's of... always like, ah, I should have listened
3: to my gut. <laughs> mm mm-hmm. I'm, right? cu- I'm curious kind of it, with all the attention that's paid towards the value of uh, college education these days, whether – you know, you were not a classic Northwestern student as far as kind of an entrepreneur who was starting businesses in their dorm room. That That is much more a prototype of Stanford or Wharton or Harvard. And yet you you did OK by, by any you know, standards. And is there something that actually was a value of getting a humanities, liberal arts, you know, focusing on journalism and things that weren't necessarily things that you wouldn't actually have led towards learning how to be a you know, an entrepreneur startup and then to sell the business. What would you say to kids these days who are sort of being told, go and get a college education that supports you professionally?
1: So careers don't exist anymore. It used to be that you could go and do everything you're supposed to, you know, everything people tell you to do. And then you go to law school or med school and, you know, you get a like high paying job and live the country club life. Those jobs don't exist. And so I don't think that that means you shouldn't go to college but you have to differentiate. You know, we as a people and as a country, we're so good at like being normal and just like fitting in doing what we're told Then we graduate or we move on into the world and then people are like, well, how are you different? Why you versus everyone else? And people are like, I don't know, like I mm-hmm. just fit in. And so what I would say is, you know, college is a great place to experiment, to you know, build a network, to you know, find who you are and for some people, it's great. For other people like you know Mark Zuckerberg, who went on to create Facebook, maybe it would have been a waste of time. You know, I think the real question is at what cost? You know, mm-hmm. with the cost of education going up, is it a good financial investment for you? And that really depends on who you are. Um, there's nothing, you know, be, there's nothing better for me than going to college. I met a great, network of friends, including Dan Roth. Dan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I would include him, but Mm. most people would not. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But that's why I'm here, I guess. (laughs) Um, There was a very short list of people. I I, I am in the tough times. (laughs) Um, And, you know, really, it just gave me time to, you know, start this business of ui when, really, I didn't have any responsibilities. So go trying to start a business when you have three kids, a mortgage, and, you know, payment like debt payments that's hard go try starting a business when like your biggest payments like beer on the weekend it's not as hard and that's what it did to me but at the time not that many people were starting businesses in college it wasn't like today where every college student has a business you know there was no commercial internet Netscape hadn't gone public yet you know you hadn't seen the first wave of internet companies and you know the Biggest business on campus was Student Solutions Inc., right? Which this was is like a moving company,
2: right? A moving oh, right. company,
1: and so that you saw those businesses, but not like billion-dollar businesses that were created like out of Harvard and Stanford.
2: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you would say you were not a believer then in the in the entrepreneurial programs that go on in college, or the idea that you go there, get trained and get out, you still think, let, 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 me, let me ask you a different question. Your kids decide they don't want to go to college. They want to just go and start businesses. You're fine with that, or do you, totally. do you push back? Yeah, Totally. I nope. mean, I
1: think everyone needs to create their own path and their own journey. And if college is that journey, great. Getting an education that propels you forward still is value. At what cost, I don't know. If one of my kids came to me and said, listen, I'm passionate about building video games, I want to build video games, or I'm passionate about programming, or I'm passionate about cutting hair, or I'm passionate about whatever, and they want to do that, I don't think that it is the responsibility of mine to get them off that journey because success is really this intersection of, you know, stuff you really like and stuff you can get paid to do. Mm-hmm. And if they have a plan or at least are passionate about something, that's half the battle.
3: Your, your wife was clearly a key partner in um, the success of the business. Um, would she say anything differently in terms of advice to your kids?
1: I don't think so. I mean, Cass and I have had an incredible partnership, and when she wasn't a key partner, she was the key partner. She ran the business and she ran the operations. We probably would have been out of business without her. Um, I know we would have. I would have like spent all the money and um, we'd be like, oh, we have no business anymore. But she, um, she's incredibly supportive of the kids. And I think if one of the kids and when one of the kids makes a passionate argument for why they want to do stuff, now it's our job to push back and make sure that we help each of the kids think through it in their own way. So it's not like we're just going to roll over and say, oh, that sounds great. Just you know, go do whatever we say you know, have you thought about, you know, is this something that you can continue doing? Is this your life's work? Is this something that you think you're good at? Can you support whatever lifestyle that you want? And if all of that checks out, I think, you know, she would agree with it.
2: Stay on Cass for one second. So you you started golf.com and Buddy with, with Cass, right? Yes. What was that, what's that working relationship like? I think there are a lot of people that would say, you know, this is my home life and I have my work life, and they're better off with uh, uh, you know not, not mixing the two. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that. If my wife's listening right now, I would never say that. But I just want she's there some people. She's probably not listening. This is live right now. I'm sure she's listening. The um, the uh, uh, so how do you how how did you uh, how do you guys deal with the, 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 the separation of work life? How do you work together? How do you also then live together afterwards?
1: yeah, so we started our first business together, which was golf dot com. she helped with the earlier business. You know we were dating. But we started when we were dating golf dot com. And looking back, it seems so logical to us at the time, but so illogical, looking back at it. like we're not even married. we're dating. And we we have a dog, so that's good. Oh wow! Like, yeah, that's
3: that's you know. I mean, if you didn't have the dog to bring you together, yeah. And uh-huh. looking
1: back, it's like you know, not only did we start it, but people funded us right when we were just dating, right? Like mm-hmm. talking about like risks on the top of their investment memo. Did like, you
3: talk about the fact that you were dating? That? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: yeah, and we and Cass and I, I think for, like. We had a bond very early on, so we, you know, we weren't looking to get hitched when we met, but there was this, like, strong attraction and, um, I think, intellectual bond that we had. We are both in the Internet business. As we moved forward, it became very much a partnership where we weren't necessarily working together every day. There was a segregation of responsibilities. She's much more organized, much more focused on the operations and the finance and the organization of the company, and I'm much more focused on the product and do we have a way to make money and sustain ourselves and raise money and all that stuff. And so there was a complete trust that developed where I knew that the company would be running well and I think she knew that we would have enough money and be able to find a business model. And it was that sort of partnership that really led us to believe that if you can't work with people who you really love, who do you work with? Do you work with your enemies? Do you work with people who, you know, you can't really stand spending time with? And When you start a business with anyone you're getting married you're spending 14 hours a day with those people and i don't care what the business is whether it's a restaurant whether it's a you know movie theater whether it's an internet company you are basically spending more time with that person than your spouse and it's a hard relationship it's a hard relation and because we've done it so many times it's let us kind of know what the other person's gonna think we don't take things personally we're able to get stuff out on the table. We're not passive aggressive. We're very aggressive if we don't agree with each other. We say and it's usually her because she's usually right um, saying like whoa you're an idiot do not do that and for a while I push back and then when you're when she's right every time you're kind of like okay <laughs> you're right. I You've trust been trained
3: you. really well. No it's not uh-huh. trained
1: like t- t- talk to anyone who has worked with us at Buddy Media or Golf.com Cass has an, an uncanny feel for people for the right decision and and it's incredible. And so I think everyone who works with Cass has been able to kind of learn from that. And typically, you know, when she has a gut feeling on something, it turns out to be right. And so when you don't take things personally, when you are able to get through any tough times, like it's not all been wine and roses, right? Like you have tough times every day, every hour for, you know, at some mm-hmm. startups. And so you, it's how you kind of, fight how you get over that. What was your of, what
3: was your low point? Between the two of you in I business? Mean,
1: so for us we love change and chaos. So our low point is probably running out of money at golf.com and being down to like the last payroll and somehow convincing like the New York Times to invest like two million dollars to kind of let us stay in business. Back in you know this was like ninety like 99 2000 actually it was 2000 because the The dot-com crash had happened right and that was stressful like you know when you are working with your spouse at that time we were married for less than a year you're all in right two eggs in one basket like (laughs) and it was when i say all in like these were lean times like there was no money in the bank there's no safety net there's no basically you know because the crash hurt you know i had an earlier company, Student Advantage, which it was a public company, which a crash really hurt that. And so we had some stock. We had like a few other things. We didn't own a house. And so we basically, I remember, we were going to go back and just get jobs. Like, We weren't going to be able to raise money for a new venture after the stock market's down like 20% in one right. week, yeah. right? And so that was probably the most stressful, but it, it wasn't really stressful between our relationship. Hmm. Um, we've never had you know, there isn't one thing which is like, wow, that was like a hard time for us because we've always been able to move forward. And frankly, when you have kids, like that's hard. So if you have kids with someone else or by yourself, like that is so much harder than any company. And so if you can work with someone in raising children, you can kind of work with someone in a Work environment, I think.
2: And what do you do at home? Do you have a do you, have you Do you have rules about when you talk about the business and when you don't, or is it no. all business all the time? All, do you talk about family
1: at work and work when you're at home? So the interesting thing is, we worked together for so long that we were constantly with each other, right, at work and at home. And so we talked about personal stuff at work and work stuff at home. And I think it was much, you know, harder for us when Cass actually, you know, she went part time you know, recently it's at uh, Salesforce. And so we started to have to say, like, how was your day, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, right. we'd have to, like, make time to sit down. and are like a
2: normal couple, right? Yeah, and we've
1: always – the other thing is we've always done date nights, you know, one night during the week and Saturday nights. And so it's... sometimes we'd go out with other people. Um, but typically it's, you know, it's us, one of those, you know, two nights, just us, and which kind of forced us to spend the time together building the relationship. Because I don't think we have a monopoly working together on, like, good relationships or bad relationships. It's just it's a different relationship, and it's one that has worked in a lot of cases. If You look at Cisco and other companies that are started by husband and wife wife teams, and I have many instances when it's blown up. But I have just as many instances of, like, best friends who started companies who no longer talk to each other. And, you know, people used to work together and were best of colleagues and now can't stand each other. And so Cass and I feel like we've been incredibly lucky because we've created the life we want doing what we want and not really be be being beholden to anyone. And now we're in a position to, you know, really kind of write our next chapter, which for me, it's kind of, you know, I've never been happier than where I am at Salesforce. The company is an incredible company. Um, Hopefully you're one of the 120,000 people who will be joining us next week at Dreamforce. But it's, you know, we – We've been very fortunate to be born in a time where, like, the internet took off and then social media and all these things um, we couldn't really control.
3: Were you and Cass on the same page on the right time to sell?
1: For Buddy, Buddy Media? Buddy
3: Actually, for both.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when you look at companies, typically you know when it's time to sell. And we've always – or not. we took I took company public at Student Advantage, and the – key is you just want to build a business. And we've always focused on just the business and building it. We've always focused on the journey and not the destination. And the best way to kind of sell for a lot of money or take a company public is just to build a real business. And so if every day you just focus on building that business, good things will happen. And then once you get approached by companies, then you know, and they're serious, and then multiple companies, you start to feel like, oh, maybe it's time. And, uh, and it's been a really easy decision, primarily because, you know, we thought there were fair valuations. And more importantly, they were just great people and great companies. I mean, Mark Benioff's a very philanthropic guy, I did the deal directly with him. And the company is just an incredible company. And Time Inc. is a great company as well, who bought Golf.com. And so it's been really easy to kind of partner with those companies.
2: But you must have had other opportunities to sell along the way. Was it ever a difficult decision to think through, is this the right one, or is this a trust-your-gut moment where you knew these companies that were approaching you weren't right or it wasn't the right time? How do you evaluate that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can talk about Buddy Media more because, I mean, I think Golf.com was a crazy ride through, like, the dot-com crash and we came out the other end. And I can't say that I wouldn't have sold in 2000, right? If someone stepped forward when the world's falling apart, okay, you could have <laughs> this company. Um, but I think Buddy Media. The interesting thing is we never really thought about selling the company until we sold the company. So you know, we'd raised 54 million dollars at the end of 2010 or end of 2011, and then you know, we hired a great executive in Susan St. Ledger, who's you know from Salesforce, and we bought a company in March. And we're just go, 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 and all of a sudden we sit down with Salesforce and, you know, there's serious interest, and we get a deal done by May, really. And so we – it was a kind of thing where we were really, you know, building a business, and it fit really well, and it just felt right, and we trusted our gut, and we, you know, got it done. And, you know, it's been just an awesome experience seeing how one of the largest software companies in the world you know, runs as a real organization.
2: This is all happening in the week that Snapchat, we we're talking in the week that, that, that it's come out that Snapchat turned down a $3 billion offer from uh, Facebook and possibly a $4 billion offer from Google. Do you ever look back and think, like, we should have held out? Were, were we thinking this could have been $15 a billion, $100 billion? You know, we could have bought everything in the world.
1: I don't. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, it was a great, you know, time. And... We're part of a great company, and very few entrepreneurs that I know at least say, wow, you shouldn't have sold. I read a story yesterday that's like people doubting that, you know, Kevin Sistrom should have sold Instagram. Right. And like Mark Cuban had the best line ever. He's like, it's hard to kind of feel bad about someone who's flying around a G7, right? <laughs> yeah. And he said that after the Yahoo kind of stock and what he did there. And you know, for those of us, I didn't set out to make an ungodly amount of money um, and looking back, it's like, well, I would have never even envisioned this as a kid, but it basically, you know, has happened and puts us on a path to basically, you know not really live our life any differently. It just gives us more flexibility and more choices on how we live. And frankly, you know philanthropy's always been a big part of our life. Really the only way you can teach your kids, kind of good ethics, in addition to talking to them and showing them, is through philanthropy and service, not donating money, but kind of time, and we do a lot of that. And I don't think that's going to change at all. I still wear, as you see, flannel shirts and and ratty pink jeans. (laughs)
3: Yeah, has that outfit changed at all as a result of any sale?
1: Were you wearing No, these jewelry? have faded a little no. more. They used to be red, and now they're pink. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. But other than that, no. And Mike's wearing, so
2: you, you can't see this, but he's got slippers on. And, um, and, a, and, a, and a, a velour robe.
1: That's <laughs> right. <laughs> It's my Playboy Mansion (laughs) robe.
3: On just the topic of kind of how things have changed you, money, the Buddy Media sale in particular is very, very public. I mean, it's very much looked at as a bellwether, something that defines sort of you as a successful entrepreneur. And instead of it being a private transaction where um, financial numbers weren't disclosed, it was out there. And you, as you describe, come from a background where it doesn't sound like, you know, there was um, wealth being flaunted. You now have a lot of wealth and a lot of other people know you have a lot of wealth. How has that changed things? Even down to like the basics of you're out with friends at a bar and you're all getting a few drinks. The tab comes – They're successful. I'm sure they're doing fine. They know you're richer than they are. Is there an expectation you're picking up the tab either from them or just the pressure you put on yourself?
1: We got fortunate with golf.com and, you know, some stuff we'd done beforehand to experience kind of a little bit of money. And I think what happens is, you know, you try not to change. I've tried not to change. You can ask my friends. I don't know if I have. I probably have a little. But what happens is everyone around you definitely does change and kind of looks at you a little differently and you know we think we've been very lucky and we're very fortunate and so i love picking up the tab and i you know i there's no problem like i have no problem with doing it like you know we've done well and if i can share that with friends great um you know i think the philanthropy side has been awesome like that's the side where we can really like it's such a great part of our life and you know mark benioff has been in many ways like my mentor in this and he like He's donated a hundred million dollars to build a hospital. And he looks at his life as not that these are consecutive, but simultaneously, a third of his life is learning, a third of it is doing, and a third of it's giving. Not consecutively, but at the same time, like how he spends his time. And that's the part that we just get so fired up. And so we've been really involved with Cycle for Survival and you know, which is a cancer fundraiser for cancer research and some other events. Which we can now make a difference because we can, you know, financially give more and we can just, um, you know, Cass has more time now. And, you know, money at the end of the day buys kind of security and freedom. And that's about it. Like there's not, you know, I don't think I know many of my friends who have made a lot of money, some who are billionaires, are some of the most unhappy people I know. Some of the poorest people are the happiest people. Money is not a proxy for any personal feelings; it just is, and it just enables you to do some stuff. And for us, because we have three kids, and we, um, you know, we do a lot of stuff. You know, we're based; we don't go out a ton. We kind of like our staying home and hanging out with them, and that has grounded us. Like we still are family people, and that's who. Um, that's what we focus on.
3: What do you say to your kid the first time they come home and say, Fred at school told me that I'm rich. Am I rich, dad?
1: Well, we live in New York City. Um, so some would say that we we're very poor at these schools. <laughs> right. um, so, you know, there is some, you know, there's wealth in the city, right? Any metropolitan area, with a Chicago or L.A., has wealth. And, you know, I think the best thing you can do with kids is like there's no sex talk. You have to talk to them many times and kind of, you know, desensit- not desensitize mm-hmm. them, but just make it so it's just a normal, healthy part of life. I think that's the same with money, that there's no money talk. There's basically like, you know, what does it mean to have some money? And it's all relative. Like if you're a six-year-old, like $100 is a huge amount of money, right? When you're 12, you know, $10,000 is ungodly amounts of money. And so I think where it gets interesting is now that they're getting old enough to Google Mm-hmm. Kind of their names. You know, we have that has spurred some conversations of, you know, wow, that is ridiculous. Yeah. Have what you tried to happened get... <laughs> there? And then we've had to sit down and be like, okay. And but what's cool is they lived they're old enough, they lived with us through the company and there's no free lunch. And there's no free lunch, meaning like you can't work as hard as we did and not have some collateral damage, and one of it is we didn't spend as much time with the kids. And so this affords us the ability to go back and cast as more time. And I think that, you know, if you ask them, they're, you know, they enjoyed the ride and proud to kind of be a part of it, and this is as much their success for the sacrifices that they made than ours.
2: That's great. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming. Thank
1: you.
0: Looking to learn more about the Roth Brothers? Visit our website, rothbrothers.podbean.com. Now, here's more with your hosts, Dan and Evan Roth.
2: Welcome back to the Roth Brothers show. Great interview with with Mike Azaro. Great. What a great guy. He, yeah. he, he was just, you know,
3: I found myself listening to him and wanting to be the kind of person he is. Yeah. Like, he just solid... As a businessman, as a husband, as a dad, just the you know all the and, and he broke down. I think what a lot of are the stereotypes of you know rich internet entrepreneur. Right? Is is if you had to cast type and say what do they look like? Right? What are they? Well, maybe he was dressed in the flannel and the cords, and that alone from this from externally. But, like, how he's how he ticks, how he thinks about, like, how he wants to, like, you know, give his kids, like, you know, stability and, and grounding to be able to, you know, be the normal kid that he was when he was growing up in a very different environment with very different wealth. Like, that's as much of a role model as it is for the guy who's like, I want to be able to build a social media business that I can sell for $800 million to salesforce.com.
2: Yep. I think it's very interesting how, you know, he, he did not build this to sell it. It was built. He his – all three of his businesses were built at a time when it wasn't the Facebook era. Mm-hmm. He, the first one was built in college before people were building internet businesses. The second one was golf.com was, as, as he talked about, sold during the bust, mm-hmm. and, and then the third one was built right during, right after the bust, and it was not done during these kind of frothy, frothy times. Um, And and so the fact that he sold has had the incredible outcomes and he's been able to stay really grounded, I think, is phenomenal. I think it's part of it. He didn't have expectations going in that he was going to suddenly. There
3: there didn't seem like there was any, like, scorecard. Like, I've made it when I've sold my third company or I've made it when I've made, you know, nine figures, two commas. You know, it's like, no, he doesn't. There's such – it seemed like he gets such pure joy out of the process of starting something, building it. And selling it, not with a dollar figure around any of those things. But it was interesting how that, you know, his low point at golf dot com in 2000. Like I I think about some of these entrepreneurs now that have never had that experience. Right. I I think what's made him successful is having gone through that near death experience and then having
2: done it with your wife. Yeah. I mean, I can't you know, we the the, the fights that we get in over. Uh, you know, having uh, ha- having toys out of place in, in the living room that's a you know that's a big deal. Imagine now running a company having employees yeah. and well, um, but
3: you shouldn't have your Legos out though, Dan. That's the problem. Is you need to be putting those away. And if you were, then you would have the kind of relationship. Have you that seen Mike the Millennium Falcon?
2: Have you seen what I'm building at home? I mean, this <laughs> this thing that you get rid of everything else. Yeah. And you just focused on the Legos. It's yeah, crazy. Yeah,
3: yeah. So, no, and the, it's that, and plus the fact that you're wearing your Chewbacca outfit while you're playing with your Millennium Falcon. It's it's you know it's 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 the whole
2: thing. That you have got wrong at home well we're going to have Mike and Cass over to show us how it's done um, <laughs> alright well thank you for tuning in to the Roth Brothers show we will be back in two weeks with a new episode another great guest you should follow us on Twitter at the Roth Brothers any at questions Twitter at Roth Brothers Twitter at Roth Brothers email us at the Roth Brothers at gmail.com
3: we are looking for feedback we uh, want to start. hear from you Send us it's anything. Business
1: it's business. It's business time. I not you trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh.
0: It's business. It's You've business been listening to The Roth Brothers Show time. with Evan Roth and Dan Roth. Let us know what you think of the show via email at, at com. through Twitter at Roth Brothers or at our website, rolfbrothers.podbean.com. The Rolf Brothers Show is recorded at The Hanger Studios in NYC.